Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Great. I'm just so excited to be back uh, again this week. We got to have a fun time on Sunday where I went to your ward and yes. wore my kilt. Yep. It was a nice kilt. Got a lot of kilt. attention. <laughs> and somehow our... Um, I didn't cause any trouble during Elder's Quorum. I No, you did not cause any trouble. But then again, did you need to? No. Exactly. So I'm glad you didn't have to cause trouble in Elder's Quorum. I'm glad we didn't have any trouble. And I hope that people recognize that with you in the room, there's going to be no room for that foolishness anyway. So, right. Although not everyone in that room knows me. Not everybody in that room knows you, but hopefully... I mean, they're going to eventually, depending yeah. on how often you decide to keep coming yes. back to that ward. Yeah, I'll keep coming back and, and, and see what happens. Yeah, see what happens. And uh, whew, I, I hope you don't have to cause trouble in the ward, but like, obviously you'll have my full support in causing whatever trouble you need to cause. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, we be... Like, I didn't know these things about my ward until about, you know, two or three weeks ago. I didn't know. But then again, we never had these conversations or attempted to have them in the past. And sure enough, back to back, we have just two weeks of all kinds of foolishness happening in my ward. And I'm just like, okay, this needs to be addressed because I know for a fact we got LGBTQ folks in the ward. There very well could be some folks in the closet. And uh, even still, I just really don't like how we talk about gay folks like they ain't there or like they're some kind of I wasn't there I mean you weren't (laughs) there but even still I don't like how we talk about I wasn't a fan of how we were talking about gay folks as if just there weren't implications for actual lives even though they couldn't see them yeah so I don't know if our people know what we're talking about okay but basically there was a question about how to do outreach and minister to LGBT folks as part of an elders quorum discussion and we don't have to go into exactly what happened but let me tell you i asked the same exact question in my elders quorum two weeks later mm-hmm. to see what would happen mm-hmm. and it was completely different mm-hmm. no inappropriate comments from anyone no problematic things no defending the indefensible no nonsense mm. in part because one i was in the room and two i framed the question with the expectations that I was leading with. Mm. And people lived into that expectation. Can you specify the expectation just for the benefit of our listeners? Well, here's what I said. I asked people how do... First of all, I framed it with a concrete narrative about a specific person who was LGBT and uh, interested in our church Mm -hmm. and talked about what happened with her and how this could have been someone. So everyone in their room is actually thinking about one person now. Yeah. And the impact on that one person. So it's not theoretical. They can't just spin off whatever. They they actually have a real person and her feelings in mind. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I said was something like, I get that no one in this room can change our policy or our understanding of doctrine, so we don't even need to have that conversation. The conversation we need to have is what do we do? What can we do here? And so that signals to everyone not to say all that awful stuff. Mm-hmm. By awful stuff, you mean affirmations of the family proclamation and the law of chastity in the ways that right. we yep. traditionally no, read. No them. one mentioned the family proclamation. No one mentioned the law of chastity. No one, none of that 
happened. And then the other thing is, like one or two allies spoke up immediately after my question to set the tone and set the pattern and give a precedent for uh, what that conversation should look like. And so anyone who is new to that ward would know, okay, we don't do that here. Just so I can highlight these things real quick, you you framed the question in a better way. The allies in the room were the first to speak up and thereby continue setting the tone of what was expected and what was appropriate. Those were the primary two things that I noticed in your particular experience, things that I think any of us could uh, introduce into our own wards should the conversation come up. And also plant the seed in anybody's mind that they should have a plan of what to do if this kind of thing happens in their ward. You know, I was ready to deal with it. The one mistake that I made that you highlighted just now was I wasn't the first to speak up. And honestly, I didn't think I would need to be, but uh, I was obviously wrong. You know, after the first comment popped things off, and I'm definitely going to do better on that. I shouldn't make assumptions like that in the spaces that I occupy. Let's just go ahead and move into the uh, content for this week. Before we do, I wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants sections 81 through 83 this week. Um, Not a lot I want to say in terms of uh, historical context here. This first section that we're going to go over is basically instruction that was first given to Jesse Gausa, but after his excommunication in about... Uh, 1833, the name was blotted out and replaced with uh, the name of Frederick G. Williams, the man who ended up filling the vacancy in the first presidency left by Jesse. Uh, 82 is basically a reiteration of the instructions to establish the uh, United Firm that we learned about, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe. And then finally, we get to Section 83, which ultimately is about inclusion of the women of women and orphans and children. Uh, within the scope of the law of consecration clarity that we didn't necessarily have when we were first given this back in section 42 i believe uh anything else in those uh sections that you want to go over before we discuss the content all right well let's go ahead and uh, move to section 81 i think you have the first words to be spoken there derek so i just want to start out with Verse 5 of section 81, here it says, Wherefore be faithful, stand in the office which I have appointed unto you. Succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees. So we have three parallel uh, imperatives here. Succor the weak, lift up the hands that hang down, and strengthen feeble knees. And this, by the way, is a quotation from Isaiah 35, giving hope to people in the midst of facing the Babylonian captivity, all of this other stuff, giving hope to this believing remnant who uh, will need to implement these things within their own community. So going off of these these responsibilities for church leaders and the community, this was given to leaders, but it was also imperative for the whole community. I want to share this quotation that I read this past week. The Reverend Tracy Blackman said this at the United Church of Christ General Synod, which is their uh, legislative body gathering. 
And Tracy Blackman said this, accessibility is God's welcome made manifest. And I want to talk a little bit about that. When our ecclesiology makes contact with reality, that's when the real power of God at work in the world is revealed. So our ecclesiology is our doctrine about the church, what we think about it, what we say about it, how we characterize it. And what we say and think about the church needs to be in dialogue with the needs of those on the margins. We see this all throughout Paul in the New Testament. And if we say that the body of Christ should make room for the structurally weaker positioned members of the body, then that impacts everything. Race, gender, disability, neurodiversity, and not just economic disparities as we are focusing in on section 81. And in contact with these, so you can actually root some of these justice issues in our ecclesiology about the body of Christ, or you can root it in our theological anthropology, our doctrine of humans, like being created in the image of God, that we're all children of God. So there's a number of angles that you can use to fortify living out God's will in this way. So I want to bring into dialogue with a scholar named Grant McCaskill, who is a New Testament professor in Scotland, who is himself autistic. And he has these things to say. So this is from an article in the Journal of Disability and Religion this year, just a few months ago. And he says, as we seek to think Christianly about autism, we may find ourselves reconsidering what it means to think Christianly at all and how the Bible operates within this. Isn't that interesting? It yeah, seems curious. like, oh, this one piece is just like a little add-on thing, but if you actually do the deep structural work to include autistic folks and neurodivergent folks, you're gonna rethink everything yeah. from how you do your worship to how you structure your leadership to how you do community to how what norms and expectations and what supports you have. You have you're gonna end up rethinking everything. Mm. And I think that is the powerful uh, message that we see here in section 81 is that when you sucker the weak, when you do all these things, you end up living out your theology. Mm. So I also wanna continue quoting from Grant McCaskill Here's what he says. With respect to autism, queer theory is relevant on one level because it operates by leaning in to the labeling practices typically used to oppress or marginalize and by revalorizing the words and concepts, often by seeking to destabilize the binaries that empower them and the values underlying these. Hence, the word queer is transformed from a pejorative term to a proud one and is embraced rather than rejected. This parallels some of the issues and practices in autism advocacy. The word autism is revalorized from a negative to a positive, partly through the destabilizing of the deficit-related terminology and the demonstration of a proudly neurodiverse community. This itself is part of the visible alignment between autism and LGBTQI plus advocacy. The communities do similar things with similar phenomena of power and marginalization. In addition though, it is also the case that there is a higher proportion of LGBTQI plus people 
within the autistic population than in the general population. Hmm. So the issues align on two levels that bear in important ways on questions of inclusion. Queer approaches, in particular then, have an obvious relevance to the practicing of biblical studies in relation to autism, close quote. This is from his uh, article, Autism and Biblical Studies, Establishing and Extending the Field Beyond Preliminary Reflection in the Journal of Disability and Religion. And so that's why I'm speaking about this as a someone who does queer interpretation of the Bible, seeing how these tools are intersectionally related and overlap in method in some some very important ways. I can think of several other connections between the LGBTQIA plus community and the autistic community. One of them is that we are, both communities are, quote, wired differently than the typical person. And by nature, they break the rules, especially these socially constructed artificial rules. In some ways, um, you've got LGBTQ folks violating the rules around sexual intercourse or gender identity, and you've got folks in the neurodivergent community who are breaking the rules of social intercourse. That's not the only um, thing, but that's one definite parallel. Here's another parallel, is that both of these identities, the, the queer identity and the neurodivergent identity, are often not shared within the family unit, which means parents can turn against their children. There can be misunderstandings and mistreatment. It's, it's not like poverty where your whole family is poor. I'm not saying one's worse than the other. I'm saying it plays out differently, right? And that ne needs to be named because... Without that understanding, you don't end up having the same, um, the same, uh, what is the word? The same, uh, I don't even know. Without that understanding, you aren't actually understanding what's going on, and you also miss some of the tools that could be used from the queer community, such as the need to come out. For example, um, the autistic identity and the queer identity are, are both typically identities that people can find themselves coming out into. Unlike, for example, uh, race or, or ethnicity or nationality. And here's another third parallel is that in many cases, people want to fix you. That's the other thing about the parents getting involved, parents and family or caretakers wanting to fix and wish it never would have happened and all sorts of other stuff. And in the response to that trying to fix you, there's masking in the autistic world and then there's closeting in the queer world. And so I don't have the time to get into everything that he talks about. He talks things about uh, making room for those who are weaker positioned, exactly what's going on here in this text. And, and this gets into things like a worship service. How do you accommodate, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is all about how to make room for people in the, in the Christian worship or in the Christian community, whether it's uh, food sacrifice to idols, uh, eating meat, or speaking in tongues, or all these other things, 
Poverty is even mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. So there's just a whole bunch of here. Oh, I better not talk about the Bible or else we're going to be here forever. But let me go back to what Grant McCaskill says. He says here in his book, Autism in the Church, Bible, Theology, and Community, he says, where churches have asked families affected by autism not to attend because their behavior compromises the performance of the worship service, something is functioning as an idol. Mm. So we have to think about that, where, yes, sir. where our loyalties lie. Yes, sir. And here's uh, another thing he said. All this is to say that in some ways our willingness to appoint autistic people to positions of leadership may be a test of whether our theology of weakness has really been applied to the church in a thoroughgoing way. Ooh, jeez. This gets back to his point in his other article about if you think Christianly about autism, it's going to sh change what it means to think Christianly at all. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And one last thing from him, and this is really important. He said in his earlier journal article, ideally attempts to integrate biblical studies and autism should be led by scholars who identify as autistic. Many of the problems with current research into autism can be traced to the treatment of autistic people as objects rather than as communicative or participant subjects. That's very important to to let the population most affected take the lead. Now I have to say that Grant McCaskill is one autistic person, and if you know one autistic person, then you know one autistic person, and there may be a variety of approaches and angles, and this is just one of them. So uh, I hope I didn't, obviously I'm leaving stuff out, but my mm -hmm. point is we need to have a conversation here, especially within the queer community, and it was especially within queer advocacy and queer theology within the church. We can't leave anyone out, or we've left everyone out. Well, if I can go ahead and uh, echo that real quick, what you just shared. Um, this is a nice little callback to what we discussed uh, you know, last week in another lesson on the law of consecration. It reminded me of what we read in section 78, verse 5, mm -hmm, uh, the implication mm -hmm. that we may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things and earthly things also, for the obtaining of heavenly things. This is yet another statement mm -hmm. about the communal necessity of equality, how we are literally not going to be acceptable to God if we are not equal in earthly things, that we may be equal and worthy of heavenly things. So um, this affects all of us. This is just another witness that this really does affect all of us. All of us got to be mindful of this you know, this inclusion business, this equality business, if we are going to be acceptable to Christ as a church, as his church specifically, and if we are communally going to obtain Zion, obtain celestial glory, whatever you want to talk about the kingdom of God here on earth, mm -hmm. this is a requirement. And uh, we are endangering not just members of these marginalized communities, or in this particular case, members of the neurodivergent and autistic community, but we are actually endangering all of us by not engaging this work of equality more uh, earnestly and, uh, and uh, consistently. So that's all I wanted to say to echo your point. Oh, and uh, the one thing I wanted to, I suppose, add to this conversation on section 81 is uh, something that I've already mentioned in talking about the background, but this was originally written for somebody else who was uh, supposed to be in the first presidency. The only thing that changed was the name 
uh, Jesse Gausa to Frederick G. Williams, with, which lets me know that this injunction to succor the weak, lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees, that is literally the counsel to whoever is going to be in the first presidency. And we could, you know, as you said, we could extend this to anybody else uh, who is in the church. But uh, I just like that this is counsel that is to any member of the first presidency, how this should be a priority to anybody in the first presidency. So if there's nothing else in section 81, we can go ahead and move to section 82. In 82, I'm starting with verse 10. And here's what it says. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say. But when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. This is really interesting because a lot of people think that God is completely free, completely arbitrary, completely unrestrained or un... Basically that God could do anything, God could do bad things and it would still be good because God is the final authority as to what's good. Okay. But here is something very interesting. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. God is accountable. Mm-hmm. God is accountable to certain promises, to certain order in the universe, to certain ethical standards, uh, to covenants. If God makes a covenant, God is accountable to that, mm-hmm. which implies that it's an act of faith to hold God accountable. And I think I've talked about this many times over the past few weeks, so I don't need to go into that. But I do want to connect this with something we hear often in the church, that obedience is the first law of heaven. I'm sure you've heard this like 20,000 times, right? <laughs> I want to put that in dialogue with this idea that God can be held accountable, right? Some people say, well, if obedience is the first law of heaven, then you have to do whatever the leader tells you that God is telling the leader to tell you. But there's something bigger going on. If Why is it that the obedience is the first law of heaven and not phrased as the o- obedience is the first law of earth? It means there's something heavenly about this. It means there's something that even God is subject to, right? So Mm. if obedience is the first law of heaven, it applies to God in heaven. And God must be obedient to the principles of justice and truth and beauty and order. And we can hold God accountable, basically go over God's head and say, God, you promised me this. I'm expecting you to do this. And so even if if God needs to be obedient, because obedience is the first law of heaven, if even God needs to be obedient, we can have a conversation with God about that. What do you think? I really love this idea of being able to hold God accountable. I didn't hear about this idea. Like, I've heard the scripture. This is a scripture mastery, you know? I've heard the scripture, but the boldness of holding God accountable, this was not an idea that occurred to me until... You know, until my mission, I actually heard uh, one of the branch presidents I served under, uh, you know, utilize this principle about how we can hold God accountable. Because at that particular time, they were like, they were a real missionary branch. I remember mm-hmm. that. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, the branch president would say, hold God accountable. Like, make deals with the Lord, in essence, you know, about what you, what it is you want to accomplish and, you know, all this other stuff but also like hold them accountable to the promises that we have as, you know, saints in the church and as people who want mm-hmm. to bring forth this kingdom. I really just thought it was beautiful that um, we in the various needs we have as, uh, you know, bringers of the Lord's truth, 
as uh, ministers of his gospel, as, you know, children of the covenant, however you want to characterize our role or our relationship to God, that there are promises and covenants associated with each of those roles, and we can hold God accountable to them. And that has tremendous implications for folks on the margins. Um, You know, one thing I really love uh, that I didn't get growing up in the LDS church, but was one of the first things I caught in the black church was uh, being raised on an eschatology of hope, you know? Mm, Just this is probably one of the most profound ways uh, that this particular promise has really hit me, Um, particularly in understanding that the same Christ who resurrected, who turned one of the most humiliating, ugliest deaths, Mm -hmm. murders, as a matter of fact, into one of the moments of greatest triumph, the fact that that God, that Christ, has promised that everything wrong with the world will ultimately be right because of him and because he did that, that is something that really informs my theology, my life, and, uh, you know, the hope that exists in me. I didn't always have that, but um, it is one of the things that uh, is beautiful about this notion of holding God accountable is understanding that the Christ who did this, the Christ who promised this, I can have hope in that Christ. It is indeed an act of faith to see all the ugliness that exists in the world around us, to see all the injustice that exists around us, to see um, you know, all the things awry in our own personal lives and be like, God is going to make all this right, and we can mm-hmm. hold mm-hmm. Uh, God accountable for that because... You know, ultimately, our covenants and the promise of the atonement is just that. So, um, sorry, round, really roundabout way of saying I find a lot of beauty in this principle because, uh, you know, it can manifest in various ways for our marginalized communities, for our personal lives, and, uh, you know, probably for other things as well. But those mm-hmm. are the primary two mm-hmm. things that stand out to me. Yeah, and I want to extend this to talk a little bit about holding each other accountable, not just God, but we can hold each other accountable in the church, and we're supposed to. We're supposed mm-hmm. to look out for one another. And so if God if God loves being held accountable, how much more should God's servants be held accountable who are actually flawed and imperfect, mm-hmm. right? If it applies to God, then it applies to, to humans who, who sin and who who mess up and who make all these mistakes. Like if you look at the biblical narrative in the Book of Mormon narrative or the church history narrative, prophets and apostles make a whole bunch of mistakes. Like this is not controversial. Right. Anyway, um, if we free our leaders from the pedestal of our expectations, they they will have room to move around. I don't know if people realize how constrained our church leaders are. They have to choose their words carefully now. They have to, it's, it's really, it must not be fun to be one of these leaders. Everything mm-hmm. is scrutinized. They're held to such a high standard that we don't allow them to make mistakes, which means mm-hmm. we don't allow them to take any risks, mm-hmm. which means every statement we get from them about racism is going to be bland, right? Mm-hmm. Or it's not going to be as strong as it could be. Correct. Because it's, it's, uh, and it's the same thing whenever they come out with these statements, it's, uh, we just don't let them take risks. We don't right. let them be wrong. We don't let them make mistakes. And that traps them. Right. So if we free our leaders from that pedestal, which is really small, actually, 
they can move around. They can be themselves, and they can freely follow God into whatever surprise God has for us. And here's where it gets real. Right now, our leaders don't even feel open to considering substantive change on LGBTQ issues. They have spent 60 years making the same mistake. Notice not 200 years. Mm -hmm. This mistake about LGBT stuff is really just since the 1960s. -hmm. They have spent 60 years making the same mistake, and because of our expectations on them, they need consistency to maintain legitimacy. While they've been making it up all along on this issue, they've been bluffing for decades that they know God's will for LGBTQ folks without even consulting us, right? Mm -hmm. So if they change on something that they've been so clear on, they will lose, or they fear they will lose, a great deal of power. And here's where it really gets real. There are two kinds of members of the church. Those who believe that the power is worth the cruelty and those who believe that the simple way of Jesus is worth the cross that we face. I have gambled everything to be a part of this second group, the one following the way of Jesus. I've dedicated my life to devouring and implementing the New Testament, the library of documents that best unleashes Jesus' actual life and ministry. What does this mean for me? It means this is Jesus' church. So that is why I will never again say that I don't fit in in the church. It's everyone else who doesn't fit in. I've been, for the past few weeks, telling all my friends, like, I, just, I don't really fit in here. I don't fit in this church. And I realize when I focus on Jesus, I'm the one that fits in, and everyone that's homophobic, they're the ones that are not actually fitting in Mm -hmm. what God is intending Mm -hmm. right here. And so that's why I I really see that there's two kinds of people in the church, those that believe that the power is worth the cruelty, right? We saw this on November 5th of 2015. Mm -hmm. And then there are those who believe that the way of Jesus is worth the cross that we face, even from members of our own community. Mm-hmm. So I want to move on to later. We've got uh, verse 11 in section 82. Therefore, verily I say unto you that it is expedient for my servants to be bound together by a bond and covenant that cannot be broken by transgression. Verse 15. Therefore, I give you, I give unto you this commandment that ye bind yourselves by this covenant and it shall be done according to the laws of the Lord. And here's the word covenant we hear a lot in the church, right? Mm -hmm. And my question is, should we worship and idolize our covenants? I think so much in in our community, we've got churchianity rather than Christianity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's idolatry. If you're looking at particular rituals, covenants, ordinances as the goal, you're going to miss out on your entire life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should boast in our covenants. And I'm getting this from Galatians 6, verses 12 through 15, which is talking about circumcision. And the opponents in Galatia were trying to boast in the circumcised flesh of the Gentiles who were being circumcised in accordance with their ideas. Ideals, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a big 
problem because the opponents in Galatia were boasting in the covenant, right? This is a lesson to not boast in the covenant because circumcision was an eternal covenant. If you look back at Genesis 17, it was uh, an eternal covenant made with Abraham. But Paul switches that around and says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that matters is a new creation, like the transformation. And so the point of these covenants, yeah, like some people are going to have this covenant of circumcision, some aren't. Yeah, whatever. Paul says it doesn't matter. Same thing with sealing. I think you can take what Paul says about circumcision and uncircumcision and say the same thing for sealing. Paul would be saying, for neither sealing nor unsealing counts for anything. The only thing that matters is a new creation. I think people get hung up on all these covenants. Now let's see what Jesus taught in Matthew 21 about this. Okay. So this is the parable of the two sons, and Jesus says that a man had two sons and asked both sons to go work in the vineyard. The first one said, I will not work, but then later he went and did it. The second son said, I will go do it, and then didn't go do it. And then Jesus asked who, which of the two did the Father's will, and it was the first one. Remember, mm -hmm. the first one is the one that didn't make a covenant. Remember, right. both of the second son made a covenant when he said, I will go and do it, that's a covenant. Right. So he made the covenant, and it turns out it's the one who didn't make the covenant that was actually justified and considered right. Mm -hmm. And what that teaches us is that making covenants is not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. I'd like to uh, briefly discuss verses uh, 17 through 19, because in the following verse from where you left off is the statement here is wisdom. And the wisdom that's given to us in a section, or sorry, in verses 17 through 19 uh, revolves once again around equality. Ever since we started our first conversations on the law of consecration, we can't escape this principle of equality and making sure that people are looked, making sure that people are looked after. This is yet another repeat, like repetition. It happens. It's been happening every week. We've been st discussing the doctrine and covenants ever since we first discussed uh, the law of consecration like we can't escape it and again that repetition means something it means that there's something important to be gained in these principles and we should probably be paying attention what i like about these particular verses though is that uh economic justice is brought up more specifically and also there's a specific a specificity of the purpose of the law for making sure that every man according to verse 18 may improve upon his talent that every man may gain other talents, yea, even in hundredfold, to be cast in the Lord's storehouse, to become common, the common property of the whole church. Every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. And early in verse 17, it tells us, you are to be equal. You are to have equal claims on the properties for the benefit of managing the concerns of your stewardships every man according to his wants and his needs in as much as his wants are just. Something that I kept thinking about um, as I pondered this verse was specifically how so many populations do not have uh, their basic needs met 
and therefore they can't improve upon their talents and gifts. Something that occurs a lot, at least uh, within the black community, is that black kids are often given a hard time about uh, their inability to uh, perhaps perform well academically. Meanwhile, they're at home, you know, struggling. Like, there are problems significantly more important for them to deal with than their academics. They got to deal with uh, their survival and, you know, difficult home circumstances or whatever else. Like when you are dealing with poverty, when you are dealing with hunger or any other variety of hardships, academics are naturally going to uh, take a back seat. So what I was thinking of specifically is making sure that everybody has what they need so that they may actually improve upon their talent, that every man may gain other talents. Uh, Michelle Obama's words about Obama Gorm- about Amanda Gorman uh, rang out to me. She was talking about how Amanda Gorman isn't necessarily an outlier. There's actually a lot of an- Amanda Gormans that could exist had they been received had they received the same opportunities, the same luck, the same opportunities to actually focus on you know their personal development, their academic development, as opposed to having to worry about simply surviving in a system that already puts them at a disadvantage at an ability to be able to do those things. Since black folks are already disproportionately affected by uh, things like poverty, things like um, you know housing discrimination, redlining, uh, acad- like even in educational systems, they're also given a harder time in terms of uh, discipline and mm-hmm. uh, more likely to be disciplined. And if they are disciplined for the same things as white kids are disciplined for, they're disciplined more harshly. So like there's a lot happening there's a lot of factors that play into making sure that uh, these children are able to have the same opportunities as their white counterparts so what i see in these verses is that part of the law part of the united orders uh, part of part of the united firm's purpose was making sure that everybody basically has uh the same things has this equality this equality is specifically given to them and mandated among them that everybody may be able to improve upon their talents that they may gain other talents and a lot of these things whether this be wealth or talent this is uh this is generational and one of the reasons that the economic equality that exists in our nation among the races still exists is because there were generational opportunities to obtain this wealth or to obtain these opportunities that simply did not exist in black communities so this is the Lord giving us a specific reason as to why he wants to see this equality existing among his people. He wants everybody to have not just their needs met, but their needs met so that their opportunities to develop themselves and to become greater than what they are, that that is also present among them. Yes, that is exactly true. There's this whole, I know I'm going to say a word that you're not going to like, bootstraps. Oh, right. Jeez. Like, that everyone can pick themselves up by their bootstraps, which first of all, there's a f- the physics problem with that because you don't have the leverage to l- literally pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Doesn't work. It's like you're on the thing that you need some other thing. Well, anyway, I, I can't explain. I don't even have the words because I'm just so frustrated with this thing. But looking at the cyclic and structural nature of these things and looking how advantage and disadvantage is inherited across generations like you can't just say oops we're all at the same starting line and we're gonna do everything by merit now first of all there's a problem even if you did everything by merit because people shouldn't have to have value to a capitalistic society in order to live 
-hmm. That is literally a hostage situation. Like you have to work in order to just live. No, I think living is a basic human right and we should take care of all people uh, even if they cannot contribute to a capitalistic society, right? There's going to be people on the margins who are of no use to these capitalistic endeavors. Now, they're of use to God and they're of use to the community, but they may not be able to, quote, work in that. And so you have to step back. Not only is there not an equal playing field, an equal starting line that you can compete based on merit, but even competing based on merit for basic survival, food, clothing, and shelter is highly problematic, especially in the context of the law of consecration where where a healthy society is supposed to take care of one another. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think this is exactly what... uh, sort of what you're talking about with um, with black folks. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously this extends to uh, other populations as well, but, like, obviously I see this issue in my community. I, I mean, I definitely have a dream that one day we're not going to have to, uh, where survival is not my goal. That is... That is my dream for my wow. people. I, I don't want survival to be the goal, like where survival for so many other people is a given and a bare minimum. Like, I want that to be our bare minimum. I want our goal to be to thrive, you know? I, I want to exist in a world where the greatest injustice that I have to deal with is, you know... My jokes? <laughs> yes Derek's jokes or no I'll go even further than that I'm gonna I don't know I want to live in a world where the greatest injustice is what happened to JC Chazay's solo career you know that's the (laughs) that's the kind of who that is but he's a member of NSYNC he was the other guy the other lead singer besides Justin he was a better dancer he was a better singer and Mm. his career got tanked I want to live in a society where that is my highest priority of injustice um but anyway, just one, one thing that just stood out to me here is I want, I don't want my goal to be to simply survive because that's what black people's goal became as soon as we got to this country. Our goal was to simply survive. I want to exist in spaces where our goal is to thrive as a people, where we can develop our talents and where simply getting out of poverty or simply being able to get food or simply being able to, you know, get out of the hood, like that is... That is way. That is the goal for way too many of us. Uh, the goal is simply survival. Like I, I, I want us to do more than eat. I want us to eat good. I want us to have opportunities to participate in endeavors that don't necessarily put the trauma of our people at the center. That's what I envision as a result of what is written here. I envision a place where the equality exists to the point where our talents can actually be developed. Anyway, talking around. Now I have a question for you. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of listeners who agree with everything that you just said, and then they're like, I don't know how to do that. Like, how do you have anything to say (laughs) about what peach people... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What peach people... P-O-P. Yeah, or persons of... Persons of peach... Whatever it is. People of no color. That's what yeah. I'll say. Um, what peach people can do 
I actually like the the framing of peach people because it makes the whole skin color thing look as silly as it is, mm-hmm. right? Like, why are we messing up people's lives based on the color of their skin? It's yeah. just like, well, anyway, peach people. So, yeah. why are peach people... Okay, if there are peach people who want to know what they can do in their ward or in their local community, <laughs> or how could they begin implementing this? Okay. I'm actually going to, that's actually a great segue into what I want to talk about in section 83. Do you have anything else in section 82 before no, we No, I don't. There? Nope. Okay, let's go ahead and move to section 83 because I feel like uh, Joseph Smith actually gives us a decent little uh, pattern of this. Um, one reason I like this principle that I gained, this isn't necessarily in any of the verses in particular, but it's in what brought about this revelation in the first place, which is uh, one reason why I like it so much. Um, I want to talk about what spurred this revelation, what likely spurred this revelation. Uh, We first got the uh, details of how this is supposed to function back in uh, section 42, verse 33. This is where we first learn about how the law of consecration is supposed to to function. It uh, reads, again, this is verse 33, that every man who has need may be amply supplied and receive according to his wants, close quote. From that, it didn't seem to be clear that this provision extended uh, to women, specifically to uh, widows Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, orphans or children. And a whole year and some change goes by before we get this particular revelation, or more pointedly, before Joseph even thinks to ask the question about the provisions for women and children. Mm -hmm. So what spurs that exactly? A big possibility that I see is uh, that around this time, Joseph had visited a settlement in Missouri that consisted primarily of saints from a a place called uh, Colesville, New York, that had migrated there. And among these saints, we have uh, Phoebe Peck and uh, Anna Rogers. These were women who had lost their husbands prior to the revelation on the law of consecration, so like back in 1829 or whatever. And uh, Joseph became friends with these women. And it is probable that this friendship with these women is uh, likely what led Joseph to inquire of the Lord regarding specifically widows and orphans and uh, their place in the law of consecration. So before we even get to the content of these verses, which seem pretty straightforward to me anyway, it's worth mentioning the role of relationships. And this is getting Mm -hmm. back to the answer to your question, the role of relationships in justice and reconciliation work and the, the role of relationships and abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. And also, before I go any further, somebody actually asked this question of the sisters in Zion on their most recent uh, Facebook post. There's a picture of the Book of Mormon on it, and uh, they talk about having it both ways as white allies. And somebody Mm -hmm. asked the question, what do you want us to do about this? And Zandra actually took the time to answer, which is a far more charitable take than I would have taken. I personally hate this question, you know, from white people asking, sorry, people of peach, Peach people, whatever. (laughs) Um, I don't like this question because it just demonstrates 
the lack of investment in the conversation. It's not that I don't think you're genuine when you ask the question, but that's like the reflexive question that a lot of white folks ask when black people talk about what is afflicting them and what needs to change and what the problem is. White people want to know, what do I do? And they usually spring into that mode of asking the nearest black person or asking the black person who, you know, posited these issues, okay, what do you want me to do about it then? Not that it's not a fair question, but the thing is, before you go and take any further emotional labor from a black person in your nearest vicinity, you should do and execute the bare minimum of doing your own research. Because here's the thing, I am pretty confident in my ability to answer this question, but also I could be wrong. I could have some fringe ideas. I don't want to bear the weight of such a, such an important uh, answer to you, especially when you've already demonstrated to this point that you may not have exercised or may have may not have demonstrated a minimum investment in this uh in this struggle for justice because if your instinct is to ask the nearest black person then i'm already of the opinion that hey your instinct is to demand free emotional labor from the nearest black person there's a laziness and an entitlement in that attitude and that already tells me you may not be ready to have this conversation so to then lay that responsibility on me to tell you exactly the right answer as to what you can do that's already a lot of pressure on me so if you want to know the answer to that question the first thing i need you to do is uh demonstrate a minimum investment in the conversation being had by doing your own research first, doing your homework, answering as many of your own questions as you can that don't require me specifically to answer that question as to what you can do. And oftentimes, the questions of what you can do will often answer themselves when you start getting proximate to injustice, which is a point I'll get to a little bit later. But anyway, to get back to... Uh, well, I want to say something about this from from the, the queer end. Yeah, absolutely. I Go ahead. I have people say well what should i do in this particular situation and then i tell them i tell them exactly what to do and then they don't do it they say nope i'm mm -hmm. gonna, i'm not gonna do that that costs me mm -hmm. too much or it's mm -hmm. gonna cause a problem or it's gonna whatever like they're unwilling to bear the burden that i have to bear right. like and this I is why they don't know that's why they don't know they don't want to know so yeah, all these all these people they they want to be allies and then they don't do the the work. Yeah, they or don't they do put, the work. What bugs me is when people have those rainbows, those ally rainbows on their profile, and then criticize me for my LGBTQ activism mm -hmm. online mm -hmm. in those spaces. I, okay, if someone has a rainbow thingy and they're mad at me for, for some other thing, that's different because mm -hmm. I might actually have, have been a jerk or whatever I did wrong and maybe I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. But if you are an ally and fail to be accountable to the leadership of queer folks, mm -hmm. when I'm specifically speaking on that issue of what to do and how to do it and i know how to go into a place and make it safe it's not very fun for anyone involved but it works right and people i get pushed back and tone policing all this other stuff and then i uh, allies ask what they can do to help and i tell them what to do and they're like no i'm not gonna do that mm -hmm. it's performative yeah it is very performative and so all those those rainbows like we we need some, yeah. Just don't do the rain. This reminds <laughs> me a lot. That. 
of the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. like, ooh, I did all this stuff. What else do I need to do? And then Jesus actually says the thing and like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Do you think and, that young ruler may have already known the answer to that question? Do you think that's a possibility? You no, know, I don't. Um, I think it came as a surprise mm. because of how sorrowful he went away. Okay. If he already knew, I don't think he would have had that change mm. in his in his affect. Okay. Right? I think he, del- at least the way it's narrated, I think he thought he was doing well. I'm like, I, I, I'm all set, right? And right. he was just confirming that he was all set and then was really shocked when the Lord asked him to do the thing, <laughs> which actually is a redistribution of justice, right? Mm-hmm. Is sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He's like, nope, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And there's so many straight people who refuse to, they, they pity us for the burden that we have and the suffering that we have, but they don't want to share the burden right. with us and right. absorb some of the suffering. Right. Like, that is not the allies I want. Right. You know what really annoyed me on your behalf uh, like a year or two ago? Remember when, who was it? Somebody in the Quorum of the Twelve came. It was Elder Anderson. When he came through and he talked to us, you asked him a question, and then people started coming up to you afterwards, you know, congratulating you or thanking you for asking a hard question. Yet during that time, you stood alone. You know, I in class or in like any of these other circumstances where people are either hostile to gay folks or hostile to black folks. And I'm the only one who has to speak up and no one backs me up. And then they come to me after class and they're just like, I really appreciate what you said in there and what you did. And I'm just like, why was I alone then? Why was I alone just now? Yeah. Like, it's not that I don't get why you were silent. But the thing is that's missing from so many people's allyship is there is a lack of courage to actually, because here's the thing, it's not always the first person that is the leader in changing the space in the room. That is what our Christian responsibility is to be in those situations. We gotta be troublemakers. We gotta be uh, cage rattlers. We're supposed to be the people that make it known that this is not okay. And if we make folks like Derek stand alone, or if you make the marginalized stand alone as they try to reclaim their humanity in spaces that are already hostile to it, then, you know, we are complicit in that oppression. We are complicit in that hostility. Right, and and the oppression and cruelty my people face in the church is so bad, a lot of the queer people fall, right? right? They're like, this is too painful, I gotta get out of here. Right. Both in, in the church, in the room, online, or whatever. Like many times, I'm the only queer person left standing mm-hmm. uh, th- through no fault of the other queer people. Like, right. but, for, but I end up getting all of that and uh it's a it's a it's a mess yeah it's a mess yeah and derek shouldn't be the only one should not be the only one but let me just real quick tell you what this dancing video was it was a video about the principle of the second follower so there was this like large gathering of people i think just chilling on a in a park or somewhere and then this one guy starts just dancing around i think he might have had music and he was dancing on his own and just looking like really goofy and he was dancing like for a long time by himself and then there was a second person as soon as the second person joined the first it normalized it Uh uh-huh and then 
once people saw two, it made it easier for a third, and then a fourth and the fifth came quickly, and then I think literally dozens or maybe even a hundred people just started dancing in the park, not because of the first guy, but because of the second guy. Mm-hmm. Isn't that interesting? Let me come back to this whole business of uh, the relationality of racial justice and reconciliation work. Um, I wanted to mention that because that is what seems to be at work in Joseph Smith's story here with uh, with uh, Phoebe Peck and Anna Rogers and what has spurred this revelation that is now Section 83. So a while ago, I asked some of the uh, collaborators, um, you know, for the show in our in our little Facebook group, I asked them to try out an exercise that I uh, that I'd heard of called the racial autobiography exercise, um, trying to identify these pieces in their history where their ideas on race were formed or changed. And multiple respondents indicated they decided to shoulder the burden of uh, abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice because someone they have a close relationship with uh, had to deal with the same, were impacted by the same. That is when a lot of people decided to do it because they knew somebody or had a close relationship with somebody who was affected uh, by racial injustice. Uh, one of the respondents, actually, she uh, adopted black teenagers a few years ago and um, felt that being a good mother meant being a passionate advocate uh, for racial justice. So she felt that doing that meant unlearning her own racial biases and making an effort to better understand the world as they experience it. And in order for her to make those decisions, all that changed for her was a relationship with black children. That's all that changed for her was her proximity to the injustice. Now, that's not to say that proximity is always enough. You know, Mm -hmm. I got four sisters. I have a mother. I have several female friends and I exclusively date women. But that does not mean I am incapable of misogyny. So I'm not saying that, uh, you know, proximity is enough for anybody. Like, I always hate when people be like, oh, I got a black friend. I can't be racist. Or I have a gay brother. Yes. Yeah. This literally happened in my ward three weeks ago. Literally happened in the midst of homophobia. But my point is, there is a power to that proximity nonetheless. And I don't I don't think it should take that. I, I, I don't think that it should take having a relationship with a member of an oppressed group in order for you to know to do the right thing. But even still, I have to acknowledge that um, true racial justice and reconciliation, racial justice, justice and reconciliation of any kind is likely not going to happen without authentic and meaningful associations with people that are, uh, that are different from us. I don't think it's supposed to be that way. I don't think it should take a relationship, but um, as evidenced by the number of LGBTQ allies we got in the church, just about everyone that I know who is an ally has some kind of relationship, usually a family member with an L- that is uh, LGBTQ. The Lord already made it clear that true justice and reconciliation is going to require relationships anyway. We're not going to be accepted unto Christ anyway if we don't cultivate healthy relationships across uh, racial, gender, orientation lines. Like, unless we cultivate those Mm -hmm, kind of relationships, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're not going to be acceptable. 
what is that? What does he say? Section 38, be one. And if you are not one, you're not mine. The Lord says this multiple times in multiple ways. I, I believe that part of the reason this is a commandment is because we're not going to be effective as ministers to different populations existing in our community unless we make an effort to uh, truly become one. I believe that Joseph's friendship with folks like that were not like him uh, enabled him to ask the right questions on uh, their behalf. Joseph became proximate to an injustice, specifically the lack of provision for women and children where the law of consecration was concerned. And then he, you know, sought a revelation. So there's a pattern there. And uh, Brian Stevenson actually highlighted that pattern. Brian Stevenson, whom Elder Renland highlighted in uh, one of his last talks in General Conference. Brian Stevenson said, quote, when we get close, and he's talking about the practice of uh, practicing proximity. He says, when we get close, we hear things that can't be heard from afar. We see things that can't be seen. And, and sometimes that makes the difference between acting justly and unjustly. When you get close to injustice, you will get broken too. But I'm here as a living witness that being broken is what makes you human, close quote. So we see this principle elsewhere in the scriptures, like it's not just in the Doctrine and Covenants, it's not just with Brian Stevenson. We saw this with Esther. Her palace life insulated her from her people and consequently from uh, the plight of the Jewish people. Her cousin Mordecai's act of protest outside the palace, that was an invitation for her to get close to the injustice that they were uh, that they were experiencing, to get close to her people, though that obviously was not going to come without risk to her own life. And this is the scary part. This is the costly part of allyship. It often costs us something socially or even physically. Esther took it so far as to say, if I perish, I perish. She knew that her allyship could cost her her life. But uh, oftentimes it's not going to cost you anything more than maybe social capital or some kind of discomfort. Are we willing to get close to injustice, even if it costs us that? Like, even if it's uncomfortable or costly for our social standing or for our comfort, that is the question I would ask. And are we willing to do what Joseph Smith did? Are we willing to get proximate to the injustice or get uh, proximate to the margins that we might be able to seek these revelations and how we might better be allies to our friends on the margins, whether they be widowed or orphaned or a different race, a different orientation, whatever else. We see a principle here, and that gave us a revelation that included provisions for widows and orphans. So I just wanted to uh, name the necessity of relationship as a operative part of uh, justice and reconciliation work because it brought us this revelation it could bring us a lot more that reminds me a lot of what jesus taught in matthew 5 in the sermon on the mount that says if you love those who love you like what good is that mm -hmm. and in in the context he was talking about love for enemies but i think it's true for love for strangers you need if if you only love gay people because of your gay brother or whatever or if you only love your gay brother but hate all those other gays that are not the right kind of gay, mm -hmm. that doesn't count. You, right. you don't get any credit for that. And I think the the proximity, I think, has to do with, at least in the, in the queer community, what happens is people find it so hard to believe all those awful lies about us once they get to know us. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not even going to go through all the lies, but basically all the lies. Like, everything yeah. awful that you've heard about us, you meet us and you realize, whoa, everything I was told was wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that maps out the same for people of color. I think people can be in relationship with people of color and still believe all the lies. Mm -hmm. But I think for some reason it works differently uh, or it can work differently in this context. But that gets back to 
one of the things that people ask, well, what can we do? One thing that people can ask themselves what to do is how do I make people's bigotry costly for them? Mm-hmm. Like in the ward, what can I do? Make their bigotry costly for them. I have determined in advance that if anyone ever says anything racist from the pulpit, I will stand up in the middle of their sentence and condemn it. I don't care how socially hmm. inappropriate that is. I don't even know if black folks or other folks of color want me to do that or not, but I'm gonna do it. <laughs> because I feel my conscience will not me will not allow me to go there on judgment day and stand before the Lord and and the Lord will say, Well, why didn't you do something? No one else in the room did anything. It was on you to do something and you didn't. I am not gonna I'm not going to face that because I have, and here's the thing, what I'm doing is making the whole thing uncomfortable for everyone so that they know that we just don't do that. Make it impossible for, make it so that people keep their racist thoughts to themselves. Mm-hmm. Make it so that it's a safer place for people of color. Make any person of color feel safer in the room. Like there's just a lot of things that will happen. And I interrupted someone, was it two weeks ago in our, um, in our uh, in yeah. our gospel doctrine class in yeah. your ward, I was there, and someone said something homophobic, and I interrupted in the middle of what she was saying mm-hmm. because it needed to be done. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what the social cost was. I needed to say something because that didn't need to go on. Correct. And the thing about that is people say, oh, that's rude or that's whatever. Jesus interrupted people, right? Mm-hmm. He interrupted people when he turned over the tables in the temple. Mm-hmm. He interrupted the stoning of a woman. That's not polite. That's, niceness is an, idol, is an yeah. idol, idol, right? Absolutely. People care about nice versus keeping someone alive. Isn't mm-hmm. that sick? Yeah, that's disgusting, bro. Like, I mean, there's a thing with whiteness. It, Peachness and whiteness that and and niceness that that people want to just maintain the politeness rather than maintain the justice and love. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm probably going to ruin all my relationships in the ward if I stand up and interrupt someone. But that's not as bad as the cross. Jesus went to the cross. Like mm. I can do that. Yeah, there's much worse. And like, if this is your cross, that's like, this is bearable. And I've decided to do this in advance so I don't have to make the decision in the moment. Mm-hmm. I've already committed to it, and that's why I'm going to inter- literally interrupt injustice when it happens. Mm. Well, all right then. Before we go ahead and uh, wrap up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer you two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and you can also find us on Facebook. So every Sunday we're going through Blair Ostler's book, Queer Mormon Theology. 
like check out our Facebook page to see the the link of how to get there, and we will um, we will we'll do that. I'm sure a lot of you already do this, but tell your friends about us. Like I don't think we've asked people to do that in a while. Yeah. But think about all of the people that you know who would benefit from listening to us, and share us with them. That's what I was going to ask. All right. Yeah, it's been a while since we had a good little call to action on the show. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Yep, till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.